Uh, okay, now we're focusing in on John 3.16. And this verse unfolds in three separate clauses. John 3.16, this one verse, it unfolds in three separate clauses. The first clause is really a foundational truth. And then the result of that truth is what comes next in the verse. And finally, the purpose behind that result. So a foundational truth, then the result of that truth, and then finally, the purpose of that result. So you might liken John 3.16 to a building. And to any building, the foundation is critical. The foundation supports everything that will be built above. And in John 3.16, everything is built upon the opening foundational truth found in that first clause. And that opening foundational truth is this. God loves the world. That's the opening truth. God loves the world. For John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The subject of this clause is obvious. It's God the Father. God the Father is the subject. He's the one doing the loving. But who he loves and how he loves in this verse is worthy of our consideration. Now, before describing who God loves, we have to first consider the meaning of the verb love. And particularly, what does, that, what does it mean that God loves? Well, one theologian, Jack Cottrell, has provided what I believe to be an excellently, excellent biblically informed definition of God's love. He defined God's love as this, his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. So it's his self-giving affection for his image-bearers that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and well-being. And I like this definition because it includes both affection and actions. Love is an affection that produces actions. Biblical love is a disposition of compassion, a disposition of compassion and compare or and care that produces selfless action or giving up of oneself. And in John 3.16, God loves the world. That is who God loves. God loves the world. That's the object of God's love. He gives up of himself to the world. God has affection for the world that motivates, of him, motivates him to give up of himself, to, re, to give over things for the world. And so we ask ourselves, well, who is the world? What is this word world, or in the Greek, cosmos, what does this refer to? I'm aware that there are some people who propose that world here refers to only God's special people, only the saved people, only the elect. That's who this is referring to, some say. They claim that God does not love every person, but only his chosen people. But when they do so, they fail to understand the clear meaning of this passage, and they fail to consider God's love within its biblical balance and proportion. Yes, God has a special particular love for his people. That's Ephesians 5.25. But that's not what this verse is saying. In Bible interpretation, as we study our Bibles, we must allow each verse to speak for themselves. And in John 3.16, God loves the world. And so the proper question is, well, who is the world in the Gospel of John? And in order to understand that question, we need to see how John uses this word world elsewhere in the book. How does John use this word world in his book? And I set out this week to do that. I wanted to study how does John use this word. And I discovered that John uses this term world or cosmos 78 times in this Gospel, and as I examined those uses, I kind of sort of compiled a, compiled a summary of how John or, or Jesus uses this term world. And this is what I found. In John 1.10, despite 
Christ creating the world and coming into the world, the world does not know him. So the world does not know him, and nor does it know the Spirit, and nor does it know the Father. The world does not know any member of the Trinity. According to John 14, 17, the world does not know the Spirit of God. And later in John 17, 25, the world does not know the Father. So the world does not know God. According to John 1, 29, the world has sin that needs to be taken away. Therefore, in John 3.17, it said that the world needs salvation. They need to be saved. In 3.19, the world is made up of men who are in the darkness, who love darkness and do evil deeds. In John chapter 6, Jesus describes the world as existing in a state of deadness, needing life. In John 7.7, Jesus says the world hates me. And why? Because he testifies that its deeds are evil. By the, way, by the way, the world also hates the disciples of Christ in John 15:18, In John 8, 23 and 24, Jesus describes the men of this world as being sinners who without belief in Christ will die in their sins. They're on a trajectory towards hell. In 9, 5, without the light of Christ, the world is in darkness or spiritually ignorant. According to John 12:31, the world is ruled by Satan. He's the ruler of the world and therefore is under, under a sentence of judgment. And finally, according to John 16:20, the world rejoiced when Christ was killed and later departed from the world. The world rejoiced. In other words, we might just say the world hates Christ. They hate his presence. So this is a summary of who the world is. They're in darkness. They do not know God. They hate God. They hate his presence. This is the world in the Gospel of John. And yet, when we come to John 3.16, God loves the world. God loves the world. He loves all people. We ask, well, how does he love them? He loves them intensely. And that's found in this little world, little word, so, in our, in our Bibles, for God so loved the world. This little word, so, functions as an adverb here, and it can mean one of two things. It can either mean uh, in this way. It can mean, this little soul can mean in this way. And the sense would be that God loves the world in this way. Or it can indicate that this is the intensity of God's love. For God so loved the world, or God loved the world greatly. This is how most of our English Bibles render it. And based upon the grammar of this verse, I think this second option is more likely. Therefore, we'd be justified in translating or rendering this verse, for God so greatly loved the world. Now, before we consider what comes next, the result of this God's love, let us just cherish this truth just for a moment. Just think upon this truth with me. God loves sinful humanity. God loves every one of his image bearers. In light of who the world is, this verse is a shock. God loves sinners? God loves sinners that have no praise for him, who hate him, who rebel against him. And this, this verse is really saying nothing praiseworthy about men. This is saying nothing good about men. Instead, it's an endorsement of the character of God. This is why Peter wrote, God is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God desires that all men come to him in repentance. That, that, this is true. This is the yearning love for God. This is why... This love, I think, is manifested in Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He knew the Jews would, re- would reject him. That was prophesied in Scripture. He knew that. Nonetheless, he still loved them, and his heart still broke, and he wept over them. 
And when they carried out what God had predicted and ordained, it broke Jesus' heart. It brought him to tears. He wept over them. And for this reason, this love within Christ caused him to constantly be inviting sinners to himself, pleading with them to come to him. Again, John 7, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, Jesus said. Or in Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, Jesus implored. Jesus invited sinners to come to him. But at the same time, it's also true that in the immediately preceding verse, that is Matthew 11:27, Jesus confessed that only those people to whom Jesus chose to reveal the Father to would ultimately know him. Yet because of his love for them, Jesus loved the sinners and invited them to come to him. And I think so should we. If this is how God loves people, so should we. We should love all people. And we should do as Paul instructs us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We should beg on behalf of Christ, imploring sinners to be reconciled to God, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 states. Plead with sinners to surrender to Christ. And this also means that if you're here today and you do not know Christ, and you know that you do not know Christ, you know that you're not a Christian, then understand that God loves you. God loves you. He has tender compassion for you, and He desires that you would come to Him. After all, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. Now we ask, what is the result of God's love? This is in this middle clause. And the result of God's love is just found here in the middle of the verse. It's, it's the Son's mission. That's what I'm calling the second clause. It's the Son's mission. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Father gave up His only begotten Son. Your version might render this clause a little bit differently. Uh, the English Standard Version, the ESV, says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And then the latest update of our Bible, the New American Standard Bible that just came out, the New American Standard 2020, renders this verse similarly. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Older English versions, older English versions tend to use the word begotten rather than only. And the, the Greek word in the original, I don't mean to be overly pedantic, but it, it, I think it's helpful if I explain it, is monogenes. That's the original word here behind begotten or only. It's, and this word can, consists of two Greek words. It's, it means monos, meaning only or alone. Monos plus another word, genos, meaning kind, sort, or class, or even a family or offspring. Now, our, our English word genealogy comes from this word, the, the study of tracing ancestral lines comes from this word. So monogenos, when we put these two words together, monogenes, means one of a kind. It means unique. But it also can mean only born or only begotten. This word is used nine times in our New Testament Bibles. For example, this word is used in Luke 7.12 when a child is referred to as the only son of his mother. And similarly, in Luke 8.42, another child is referred to as a man's only daughter, meaning his only child. And in both of these instances, our English Bible translates monogenes as only. But we must say that it would be equally correct to refer to these children as the only born of their parents, the only born children. In fact, whenever this word monogenes refers to someone in the New Testament other than Jesus, there's always a sense of familial descent. There's always a sense of, of, of familial descent involved. But when it comes to John 3.16, we have a bit of a problem. 
because we understand that Jesus was not born. Jesus cannot be the only born of God because Jesus himself is God. Jesus, according to John 1, 2, was in the beginning with God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. God has always existed. God has always existed and he's always existed in a triune nature. And despite all the clear references of the eternal deity of Christ, the cults have jumped on this one term, monogenes, to prove their heretical views of Christ. They say, look, monogenes means only begotten or only born. Therefore, Jesus is not God. He was born in time. At least he's not fully God. We would refer to this as the ancient Arian heresy that was condemned in the Nicene Council of AD 325. To say that Jesus is not God is a, is a heretical view according to the Council of Nicaea. And we would say clear, clearly that's heretical in terms of the Scripture. The Scripture says all over the place that Jesus is God. But in response to the cults in the last century or so, English-speaking conservative Bible-believing Christians did what we're often prone to do. We overcorrect. And reacting against the cults, we decided to render this term as only or unique. We wanted to protect the term and protect, protect the doctrine of the deity of Christ, so we just said, let's just call it only. But by, by the use of the word and by the etymology, the, the root of the word, it means more than unique. I agree that Jesus was not born. Surely Jesus was not born. He's always existed as God. Yet he is the only begotten of the Father. And in the Gospel of John, the apostle focuses on Jesus' use of the idea of birth. In order to be a Christian in John 3, one must be born again. In John 1.13, believers are born of God. And in both of these passages, the birth that is referred to is a physical birth. It's not, excuse me, it's not a physical birth. It's a spiritual birth. This suggests that this term, monogenes, means more than only born. It means more than only born. This term points to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It's not the son's birth because we know that he has no birth. It's not referring to a physical birth. This term, monogenes, implies that Christ is fundamentally unique, but it also implies more than that. It refers to Christ's eternal filial relationship with God the Father. Jesus, as God, has always existed. And as God, he's always existed in a father-son relationship with God. The word only begotten does not involve actual reproduction, but instead it indicates a father-son relationship. Therefore, I, be- I believe it's best to render this term as only begotten. It means more than only or unique. This, there's rich theology just latent in this one word. And we ask, well, why is this all important? Why, why focus on this? What's the point? Well, Jesus has always existed as God the Son. He is always and forever will be God the Son. He's always been in a father-son relationship with God the Father. God the, God the Father has always had a special love for God the Son, like any father loves their sons. This is the type of love that God has for his son. He loves him like a son, and he's always loved him like a son. So why is this important here? Because as a result of God's love for wicked sinners like us, God gave up his only begotten son. God gave him up. In the Gospel of John, again, repeatedly we're told that the Father loves the Son. We find it in chapter 3, in chapter 10, in chapter 15, in chapter 17, and then again with another word in chapter 5. We're told repeatedly that the Father loves the Son. And He's always loved the Son. 
This is the way it's always been. Yet God the Father had a great affection and compassion towards His Son. Besides that, He still gave Him up. He still gave up His Son. And I believe that when Abraham was willing to offer up his son, which we read this morning in Genesis 22, we just sort of have a picture of this love. Here, Abraham offering on the altar his only son. And as you recall in that text, it stresses, it's Abraham's only son he's giving up. But you'll recall that Isaac did not die on that day. God provided a lamb that died on that day. But Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin, the sin of the world, he did die. He did die. God gave him up. He sent His Son to the world to be humbled as a man, taking on human flesh, being incarnated. And then He was humbled even to the point of death, and a particular kind of death, a gruesome, awful death, a death on a cross. The eternal relationship of love between God the Father and God the Son was temporarily altered when Jesus was crucified for sinners. When God the Father poured out His wrath upon the Son, Isaiah 53 tells us that Yahweh, God the Father, was pleased to crush the Son. And the Son freely offered up Himself as a guilt offering. And on the cross, this intra-Trinitarian love relationship was temporarily altered, so much so that Jesus could cry out in a moment before His death, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Never before had Jesus ever felt any sort of forsaken or abandonment from God the Father, but he experienced it on the cross. We ask, why? Why? How even? We know it's because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So you see, as a result of God's love for sinners, the, the Father gave up his only Son. He delivered him over. So now we've considered the sort of foundational truth of this passage. God loves the world. And then the, the immediate result or consequence of God's love is that he, has this, he gave up his only begotten son. And now we come to the purpose. To what end did God give up his son? Why did he do that? And we find this purpose in giving up the son in this final clause of John 3.16. Look at me. Look at your Bibles with me to the last portion of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Note that first word after the comma, that or so that. That's, that's a purpose clause. So the purpose is this. It's the salvation of men. The purpose is this, the salvation of men. Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes or everyone who believes. And here, this is a special type of belief that Jesus is referring to. Grammatically, it's in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing, continual belief. And as you know, belief in the Gospel of John is, is a key theme. It's mentioned repeatedly, just about 98 times in the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John. Indeed, belief is what is necessary for salvation from eternal death. But in the Gospel of John, there's a form of belief that is actually not a saving belief. Understand this. In the Gospel of John, there's a form of belief that is not a saving belief. We might refer to this as a belief that comes from intellectual assent. Intellectual assent. According to the Gospel of John, and ultimately according to Christ, it's possible to believe in Christ, but believe in a way that will not save you from the wrath of God. I'd like you to see this with me. If you're in John chapter 3, look back to the previous chapter in verse 23. John 2:23. There it says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name. Great. Here are some believers. They're believing in his names. 
They're observing his signs, which he was doing. But verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here we have some people that believe, and yet Jesus is sort of reluctantly drawing back from them. He's not going to entrust himself. to. And so after seeing this, I think we should ask ourselves, why? What's going on here? What kind of belief is this? And this sort of continues in the Gospel of John. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Look at John chapter 8, verse 31. Here it starts out, So Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, Okay, these are, this, Jesus is speaking to Jews who had believed in him. If you continue in my word, then you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So Jesus presents these Jewish believers with a condition. If you continue or remain in my word, then you are truly my disciples. The implication is if they failed to remain in his word, it would be revealed that they were not truly his disciples. And as a side note here, just a mark of a true Christian is someone who abides in the word of God, who continues in the word of God. But, but in John chapter 8, G- Jesus continues this conversation with the Jews throughout the end of the chapter. The whole chapter is a conversation with these Jews. And look what he says to them in verse 42. Look at John 8:42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Wait a minute. Verse 31 said they were believers. And yet Jesus here plainly tells them they do not believe. And he also calls them sons of the devil. So we might call these Jews as unbelieving believers. They have a superficial faith in Christ. They believe on some level. And finally, we find something similar in John chapter 12. Please turn there with me and look at John chapter 12, verses 25 and 26. Again, we're just unfolding this theme that John presents in this gospel, or really Jesus presents. Look at verse 25. Here, Jesus, John chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus gives some criteria for his disciples. He says, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it, will keep it to eternal life. Anyone, anyone who serves me, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so here in verse, in verse 12, in the very same chapter, what we have in these two passages, in the second one, these rulers believed in Christ, but they were not willing to follow him. They believed in Christ, but they were not willing to follow him. They believed in Christ, but they did not hate their own life. Instead, they desired to keep their own life and keep it safe. They, they believed in him, but they were, were not willing to publicly stand with Christ or publicly serve him. They believed in him, But where Jesus was, these disciples were not. So what can we conclude as we compare these two passages in the same chapter? They believed, and yet they did not believe. They were not truly disciples of Christ. This is why I believe the present tense in John 3.16 is critically important. It is everyone who believes and continues to believe, continues believing, It is that person who has eternal life. It's a belief that represents a faith that continues, a faith that remains. 
Everyone who believes in Christ in the Gospel of John experiences the new birth. They have eternal life based on John 3:15 and 16 and is saved according to John 3:17. The alternative again in John 3:16 if you look there is to perish. Those who do not believe, they do not have this faith, will perish. They'll lose their life eternally. They'll be doomed to destruction. And there really is no third alternative. The reality is that for all those who reject Christ, they'll one day suffer God's wrath in all eternity. You either believe in Christ and and, and receive eternal life or reject Christ and perish eternally. So those who perish eternally will not experience God's love. True belief in Christ is a a belief that necessarily reorients one's entire life. It is a faith that clings to Christ as as one's only possible means of salvation and simultaneously, while believing and trusting in Christ for salvation, surrenders everything to Christ to follow Him. It's really, in other words, we could say it's a faith that causes you to lose your life. Meaning you give up everything. You surrender it all to Christ. So the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle that God is love. And we ex- we've seen here that God exists in this inter- intra-Trinitarian love relationship with the other members of the Godhead. We've also seen that he's got this providential love. He's got a predict- particular unconditional love for his people. And he's also got a form of conditional love for his people. And he has a yearning love for all people, a love that's rep- represented in John 3.16. He loves sinners And his love for sinners is manifested on the cross in giving up the Son. And I believe, as I think about this yearning love for God, I think we must say that it has an expiration date. This yearning love of God has an expiration date. If you do not know Christ, John 3.16 tells us that God loves you. God loves you if you do not know him. Even though you rejected him, he still loves you. And he desires that you surrender your life to him. So John 3.16 is true. And yet Psalms 5 is also true. He hates all who do iniquity. He abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit in Psalm 5. So both of these things are true. And now, in His compassion and mercy, God's love is for you. But everyone only has one life to live, and then comes judgment. That's when God's yearning love expires. When you'll no longer experience his yearning love, you'll experience the wrath of God expressed against those who reject him for all eternity. Experiencing God's wrath for all eternity. And if you die without Christ, that will be true of you. God's love for you will be totally eclipsed by his wrath for you, for your sins against him. So let me just plead with you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must trust him. You must believe in him. You must place your faith in him. You must repent of your sin. Everyone has only one life to live, and then comes judgment. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great text. God, we are stunned that you love people that hate you. God, we we struggle to love even those who love us. But you you have great love for people that hate you. And so I pray that that would be true of us. Would we love those who hate us? Would Would we be a loving people that have a yearning love for people to know Christ and come to salvation? Would we be motivated by that? Lord, I pray for any here who do not know Christ. Would they see the love of God for them? Would they understand John 3.16? Would you you just by your kindness 
for them, lead them to repentance. Lord, we pray that they would come to know you. We think of our little ones, but they all come to know you. They come to, to see Christ and be born again and saved, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you, if you would, as we transition to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning, I'd like to, to read a couple verses to you from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, uh, just in preparation for our observance of communion this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'll read verses 14 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the, blood, the bread which we break a sharing in the, the body of Christ? So, so notice here the Apostle Paul is teaching upon the topic of the Lord's Supper, or what we might call communion. And he commands the church of Corinth to not engage in idol worship because it would be just preposterous to presume that one could engage in idol worship on one hand and then on the other hand go and partake of the Lord's Supper to remember the Lord's death on their behalf. One cannot do that. He cannot engage in idol worship and then share in the blood and body of Christ. So when one partakes of communion in this verse, he is sharing in the body of Christ. Notice that in the text. He's sharing in the body of Christ. And as we know, the body of Christ is the church. So Christ is the head of the church and we are the body. Therefore, Paul adds this, what I believe is really an oft-neglected verse, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 10:17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And just as, your, as a footnote in your Bible may indicate, this word bread here is referring to a loaf. Since there is one loaf. The idea seems to be that in the early apostolic church, when they observed the Lord's Supper, they observed it by sharing one loaf, and they'd probably pass it around, breaking off individual pieces, and then partaking together. And since there is one loaf, according to Paul, he concludes, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This verse indicates that through observing communion or Lord's Supper, we indicate that we are one body. We are sharing in the body of Christ. In other words, we could say that by partaking, we indicate that we are the church. And those who partake of the Lord's Supper together are a church. Those who observe this together are doing something that demonstrates that they are a church. And it's for this reason that I don't think it's wise to observe the Lord's Supper in other scenarios, in family gatherings or other things like that. This is, this is an ordinance of the church. It's something we do as a church. We partake together. Yes, 1 Corinthians tells us we remember the Lord's death, but we also remember the people that we have committed ourselves to in the church when we partake together. So, in essence, this is a family meal when we come to the Lord's table. And if you're a visitor here with us and you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would love for you to join us in this family meal. But in light of this being a family meal and understanding that this is a unifying event in the church, By partaking, we are communing together as a church. We're sharing in the body of Christ. And therefore, understand that there's no one right way to partake of the elements. Some may choose to close their eyes in sort of private meditation reflecting upon the Lord's death. Others may prefer to partake with eyes open, seeing your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, recognizing that we together are the body of Christ and remembering our commitment to follow Christ together. So either way is good. 
In private meditation, closing your eyes and partake, partaking, that is good. But also looking around wide-eyed and saying, yes, we believe this together. We believe in the resurrected Messiah and we together are a church and we remember this together. That is good too. So while Kim comes to play on the piano, I'd like to invite the men to come down as we pass out the elements this morning.